Hey everyone, welcome back to the TechCrunch Live podcast, where we help founders build better venture-backed businesses. I'm Matt Burns, and this is the podcast version of our weekly live show, which you can register for at TechCrunch.com. We've got a great show today, though. I spoke with Trulio co-founder Tannis George and David Blumberg of Blumberg Capital. Tannis and her co-founder, Stephen Ufford, began their journey with Trulio back in 2011, and today she runs the co-founders hub. It's a service dedicated to helping founders identify their needs and find a co-founder who works best in that situation. David was one of Trulio's first investors and put money in at every round. On today's episode, we talked about finding a co-founder, if you weren't lucky enough to meet one in high school like Tannis, building partnerships and putting the founder ego aside, and navigating the equity split. As always, you can find the full video of today's conversation on our YouTube channel, which we'll link in the show notes below. Be sure to stay through to the end, though, for audience questions on our favorite segment, Pitch Practice. Enjoy. The importance of a co-founder is often lost in history. A good co-founder should be someone who has different skills than the other founders. David brings a unique perspective to this conversation too. He's a prolific investor and he can speak to VC's point of view on having multiple founding partners in, in a startup. As I understand it, a venture capitalists often view companies founded by complementary co-founders as less risky and more likely to succeed. So with that, let's talk about co-founders. Tannis, David, thanks for being here. Hi, Matthew. Thank you. Hey there. So, Tannis, let's start with you. We need to start about Trulio. How did you land there and what was your role? Yeah, for sure. Back in 2011, uh, Stephen, my co-founder, and I had actually just finished uh, the acquisition of our previous company and we had another idea. And Stephen decided that the best place to kind of head out and do this was in Silicon Valley. And so that's where he headed off to was to Sunnyvale and to the plug play accelerator there. And we began our journey there in, uh, in the Valley. What, what, were the, what were the early days like and, and how did you help build the company? So it was interesting because as co-founders, um, especially where we understood the importance of actually starting our journey off in the Valley, we had to decide, okay, who's going to be where, who's going to do what roles. And at that point, we really looked at life stage. Um, you know, I had two kids under two when we started Trulio and Stephen was definitely much more flexible um, and able to actually head down to the Valley. Because of that, it definitely assigned our roles and, and it became who was going to be that front facing person who was really going to be that champion for for the business in say the fundraising size and the R&D whereas I was back in Vancouver then managing our small team and so from that that is sort of how our roles evolved and became what they were eventually throughout the whole business and I think that happens for a lot of co-founders as well now David we, we have talked to you as well so how did you get involved in Trulio so I had been a regular coach, advisor, I don't know the exact term, at plug and play and I used to go down and um you know give VC advice to many uh, founders and be on panels and judging pitch contests and so on. And as part of that, they would often organize a group of companies that would be ready to meet with me the day I was down uh, visiting. One bright day, I, I got to meet uh, Tannis and Steve. I was struck by a few things. One, I liked their idea because a huge proliferation of new data was surfacing, new social graphs to know who you were connected to. And from that graph, one could derive, or at least the theory was one could derive a lot of information about you, your identity, your validity, your verifiability, etc. And so that was their idea. However, they also had this wonderful foundation. Both of them had done three companies together successfully in the past, but they had sold them into the credit bureau industry. So they understood 
the who, the what, the why, the how, and they didn't kill each other in the process. So I thought that was a relatively lower risk set of circumstances. So those were two things. The area, the, the, the theme was attractive and the team was tested. Yeah, of, of course. So what kind of qualities, David, do you see make for a good complementary co-founders? Yeah. Okay. Well, complementary depends on which, let's say A and B. So if A is very technical, hopefully B has some more of the business and operational abilities. If one has a natural extroverted personality and can sell, maybe the other one is a detail-oriented, diligent picker up of the pieces when they fall on the floor. Sometimes one has language skills that the other doesn't have. That's that's important. We deal a lot with Israeli companies. And so if one of them is really a very good English speaker, that obviously helps in the international markets. Again, if they've been tested together, like a college roommate is a very common experience where we find people coming out of that uh, as co-founders. Um, Tannis and Stephen Ufford knew each other all the way back from high school. So that was even more testing. And um, they had also done three companies together. So what we often find, again, sometimes it's roommates from college or something like that. Other times it's people who work together at Salesforce or at Google, or and they've had um, experience together and can size each other up and know where their skill sets merge and are reinforcing and where they're divergent and they fill in a gap that's otherwise um, in that team. Of course, Tannis? Yeah, one of the things that I often, um, when I'm talking to co-founders, when they're looking for for a potential partner, one of the main things that I ask them to do is actually look at themselves and take stock of of themselves. And I think a lot of times when partners are looking, they often go very task or or skill set oriented. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a I have a business idea. I need a technical founder, and I I tend to ask them to step away a little bit from that and to actually do a little more self assessment and and look at you know what is my personality style you know a lot of times that i've seen you know a failure of compatibility when you have, say, someone who's very high level and two or two people that are very high level thinkers and they're not necessarily the kind to get deep and, and, and get detailed. And that is so essential in being able to really navigate the execution of a, of a strong venture. So I, I often ask people to, to do what seems obvious, but like take those personality tests, find out what is your conflict? How do you handle conflict? Uh, these kind of questions really do actually translate into a partnership long-term. So first starting with you and really identify what do I need? And sometimes it's even as simple as capital. Maybe you have a poor, a poor credit rating and you, and you know that you're going to need to be accessing capital. You know, you might need somebody who can pick you up from that side. So it's more than just always the obvious. I call it the obvious list. It, oftentimes, there's these much more subtle factors that actually play a really strong role in the strength of a partnership. That sounds really hard because uh, because if I'm a founder, I can do everything. How do you get the founder to put the ego aside and, and then admit that there are some faults in their character? Yeah. So um, the way I've learned is that heading into a partnership requires a ton of maturity. And oftentimes it is saying to someone, you know what, you got to bring down the ego a little and in, in all levels, even just have a, have a great relationship with your co-founder, that maturity level needs to be there. So I think as founders, the best thing we can do is recognize we're not great at everything. And it serves us long-term because financially, you know, if we think we can do everything, we'll fail. So really, it serves us to recognize where are we maybe a 
four or a five. Um, and then maybe that is the place where I need to find that person who can quote unquote complete me. What about spouses? I, I know the startup house was founded by Audi Tarko and, and her husband, right? Family in general is almost in many ways a whole other ball game. There's a lot of uh, in interconnection between the personal life and the professional life. One of the things that is so important is communication and communicating expectations and writing that stuff down. And, and it's all even more so with um, a spouse and saying, you know, how are we going to navigate our home life versus our, our work life and our professional life? And what are the non-negotiables there? I know my husband and I, we could never work together. <laughs> you know, it just would never work. So, um, you know, and recognizing that, but if you, if, if it is something that you're going to do, then really, really, again, putting first and foremost communication, maybe even having an outside person that you can speak with on a regular basis where you can air out your frustrations in a way that will be not just accusatory, but actually, um, you know, progressive and, and get you through these challenges that you're going to have. And don't be afraid to find a mediator or a professional or an excellent advisor who is really there, who has no vested interest in the business, but is there to actually help you navigate those relational issues that come in in a professional life. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of that. What, what Tanis mentioned, advisors, also organizations that are there to support founders like YPO and other kinds of similar peer group organizations are very good because it's also lonely being a founder, whether you're in a team like Tannis and Stephen Ufford were, or um, just a solo founder or, 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 or trio, whatever, it's still lonely because the whole company that works with you for you, they're in a different position. There, there are things that only you're going to want to talk about together or think about or make decisions about. Uh, so it can be very lonely and frustrating um, if you don't have with whom to communicate. So I urge that. Usually in the, there's this nepotism and we have a bias against nepotism in, in venture capital. So we've we, we had rules. We're not gonna fund husband, wife, father, daughter, father, son, brother, brother. We've done everything. And we've had, we've had every confabulation uh, possible, I think. Some of them have worked out great. Others have been flame outs. It's just like the human experience. And so whether that it's just an extra layer to be concerned about, you know, if you're VC and you're thinking about, oh, gee, they're, you know, husband and wife, they're going to always vote together on some issue. What if one of them doesn't make it and you need to really remove one? Well, then the other spouse is probably going to side with their spouse. It can get messy. So those things, again, try and think it through in advance. If it's got that extra layer of complication of a familial relationship, then that should try and be dealt with ahead of time to the extent possible. Now, now what, let's say you're starting a tech company in the middle of nowhere. What resources or events should people go to? One of the things that I say first and foremost, from, from just my experience of interviewing founders in so many different uh, ways, is beginning the uncomfortable act of putting yourself out there. A lot of times I've talked to people who said, oh, I mentioned to somebody an idea and they recommended somebody to me. And uh, again, it's not always the case, but I think that being able and willing to say, here's what I'm working on. Hey, Joe, do you, do you know anybody with the skill set? And then you get that layer of filtering that kind of comes through and someone says, yeah, you know, I know somebody who's looking for an opportunity. So I think that a lot of people underestimate their current network and the network of the people around them. So you really utilizing that, um, I have found a surprising amount of success for founders 
leaders who are looking for people to just go out there and just say, here's what I'm doing. Do you know somebody? And a lot of times people try and go to maybe meetups or, or online events um, that, that offer the ability to meet other co-founders, which are amazing. And I highly recommend that as well. But there's also a much more you know homegrown way that you can actually look for people. And that is by utilizing your network. I have a lot to say on this topic. I'll try to be brief and organized. So number one, there are several dimensions under which one can think about this topic. One is in the domain. So whatever your area of work is, say you're you know, doing radar, I don't know. You'd want to go to the radar conventions. All right. But then you also want to go to horizontal founder kinds of conventions, things like the TechCrunch does, right? You guys do great events that are all kinds of folks across a whole variety of domains. So you're going to learn more about skills and funding mechanisms, terms, and who are good VCs and so on and so forth, and who are the bad VCs. And so that's the horizontal. And then there's this technical domain. So both are useful. I think sometimes it's good to put yourself out there, as Tana said, but in a very formal way to speak, get on a panel, do a keynote, write a white paper, do a podcast. That shows that you have something to say to the world. And every entrepreneur does. As a, by definition, as an entrepreneur founder, you're saying there's a problem that's unsolved and I or my team and I have figured out something that is a way forward. We're going to make human life better in some serious way. Hopefully the people are going to actually even pay for, uh, but that's a good thing. Capitalism is the best social program ever invented. And so um, what we like to see is that people who are making their own future, making their own luck, but they're working hard at it. And so they have many at-bats. There's also now you know, LinkedIn and these incredible networking tools. And, and you'd be surprised how people are can be responsive. You know, some, some are not, but that's okay too. And, and some people are very busy. But you will, if you keep knocking on doors, a number of them will open that you would have never expected to in, in, the, in the past. And then always the best question at the end of any sort of diligence or thing is, who else should I talk to? Now, you talked about, about making contracts and there's equity distribution with founding a company as well. How do you advise startups to divide that between founders? Yeah. So I think some of the key elements are obviously investment. You know, who, how much is everybody? That's a simple way of doing it. You know, if someone's coming in with, with all the capital into the investment or if you're sharing it, that's one element to look at. Uh, there's also time commitment. There's who brought, who brought the idea in. Was there any work pre-done that needs to be brought in and recognized in equity? One of the key things that I do say to people though, however you end up doing that equity split, I would recommend a vesting period and that just protects you whether it's three years, four years, um, that just protects you should something happen in the next 12 to 24 months. And one founder just is like, hey, I'm, I'm out for any myriad of reasons. You're not losing all that equity in, in one false swoop. You actually have a recognition of the work done, but you're not actually giving all of that away. So you know, finding out what those equity um, factors are is also, of course, very important. But adding that vesting on top of it is really, really key. I agree with that. David? I, I agree as well. And there are a few things. There's also this concept of getting outside of yourself. Because when you're a founder as an individual, you have your own individual rights and responsibilities and goals and, and, and uh, drive and so on. There's also this role that you have as a leader of a company. And the company has its own dynamics. And, and you need to be a fiduciary in many cases, especially as a director. Many people don't understand that, that distinction. But for example, as a venture capitalist, we are a shareholder 
But if we're on the board and we can vote our shares in our own interest, nobody can tell us what to do. We can vote our do any, any way we want. As a board of directors member, you have to really do what's best for the company in what's called reasonable business judgment. Now, that's a broad set of reasonableness. But um, if you're doing something that's just purely selfish and hurts the company, that can be questioned in court and it can get messy. So I urge everybody who's a founder to think that you not only have your own personal goals, but you also have this stewardship goal of, of, of running the company for the best interest of the whole entity. And sometimes that'll mean different from your own best interest. You know, it might be best if you actually leave the company <laughs> for the company to survive. I'm going to dramatic, but that's it happens. So I like the idea of vesting. We sometimes ask for that as revesting, you know, when we're doing a term sheet, uh, because we can say, wait a minute, if these guys are fully vested, they can just walk out the door the next day. They've got the money. They still will benefit if the company does well, but we don't have their oomph, their drive, their vision, their uh, work product to to help it. So this is a thing it's called, always think about this, alignment of values. If we are more aligned, it'll be better. That's why early stage venture capitalists, Lumber Capital is almost always the first investor in it. And so we're very closely aligned with the founders. They have common stock. We have preferred A, generally. Now, once you get way up the stack and you're going farther down the road, series C, series D, they have different time horizons. They might have different interests and you can get syndicate divergence. That's another important thing. You didn't ask about it, but I'll just mention for founders, you gotta watch out. You know, Make sure that your VCs or, or strategics or angels are somewhat compatible. Otherwise, you'd be pulled in multiple directions that are incompatible. Matt, could I could I also just add in here that it's also um, as a founder when you are offering equity to a co-founder. Uh, there's been so many that I've interviewed who said that it was the fact that they were equal or close to equal that kept their partner in through the hard times. I mean, entrepreneurship is an extremely difficult journey, so it's not the time to be stingy or greedy about your equity because you really want that person when it's a difficult time you want them to have enough vested interest that they're like you know what i'm going to push through this because it's worth it i think that's great advice you're all in it together what i would like to do now is we have some questions from the audience the first one um david specifically to you i i'm also wondering how vcs assess solo founders who choose to work with the industry partner companies instead of bringing on a co-founder at early stages it's a little bit harder road to hoe, as they say. Um, I am a single co uh, solo founder for my firm, Lumber Capital. So, you know, here I am, guilty as charged, and it's worked out just fine. But not everyone can do everything. And generally, you're stronger in a group. Now, it, it may be fine for you. This is very um, fact-based determination. If you really have all the right skill sets and you can verify that by outside third parties telling you, oh, you've got what it all takes, then you're probably going to be fine uh, as a solo founder. That said, there are far more companies that are founded by teams. So I think the data show that generally not everyone has everything that's needed, but have a, have a consult with yourself. Dig deep in, down, do that, you know, hard questions that only you know the answer to, but, but ask those hard questions to yourself before you set out on the journey. So I think this is a really, really interesting one. Um, Brian needs an approach because he lost one of his co-founders. So what do you do when a co-founder bails? 
Yeah. So the first thing you want to do is protect cor uh, your corporate culture. Um, there's going to be a lot of chatting at the water cooler. And so that, that would be the first thing is definitely make sure that there's a confidence return back to your team. Make sure that you're explaining to everybody, you know, here's, you don't have to go into the nitty gritty of what happened, but you definitely should recognize that this is a key player that left, but here's how we are going to rally together, really making sure that whatever roles that they were, were handling are going to be covered. And that's really the main key. And then as a founder who's remaining, you really have to ask your question, yourself that question, like, is this something that I can do? Or is this a pivot point now for my company? And for some businesses, when a co-founder leaves, it really can be a, a nail in the coffin. So the question is, how do you, you you've got to find people around you, professionals who can help you navigate that next piece of your business. And then of course, too, you can always look inward, look within your company. Is there someone that you can bring up from that's within the ranks that you can offer that position to? It is it is difficult. So you really got to calm down, you know, grab your head, you know, really start to think about, okay, what's the next step? Um, but focus on your culture now, focus on talking to your suppliers, your vendors, all these people who are going to start hearing around, oh, so-and-so so left, calm their concerns, and then prepare to address the next part. Matthew, if I can camp on her big shoulders, um, this is very common. It, it happens. We have eight unicorns that we've been lucky enough and we're grateful to have backed from earliest stage. And I think six or seven out of the eight, there was some either some kind of split up of the founder team or the CEO eventually was replaced by a, a kind of a managerial CEO from the first founder CEO. So it, it's very common. Sometimes you can use the VCs as helping. I just did this speech to the all hands the other day when um, the CEO left and we had to kind of, as, as Tana said, you know, shore up the troops and assure everybody, this is not a layoff. This is a one-off, you know, for its own reasons. And we tried to explain what we could. There's sometimes when you can't because of legal issues or lawsuits or stuff you can't talk about, but we tried to do the best we could to reassure people. And, and that's an important part of it too. But I think the one other thing that uh, needs to be said is that what were that person's super strength and how do you shore that up? So find out what there was really that they're really good at. Maybe there's some defects, but forget those. What was the good part that's now missing? And you need to patch that part of your ship. Well, this is great advice today. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's one of the deepest topics we, we've got into. So thank you both. But we're going to switch gears. We, we have a few more minutes with you guys. And we have three companies that are ready to pitch you both. We call this pitch practice. And the goal is just to hear a pitch. I want founders to come on and, and pitch us. And then we're going to get feedback on the pitch. We're not going to give advice on the company itself or product market fit or anything like that. We just want to hear your storytelling abilities. Now we have three companies waiting. I'm going to try to find my sheet as I talk here. First one, we have Dan Locke. Dan, I see you. Hi there. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Well, you have two minutes. There should be a timer there. Go ahead and start your pitch and we'll talk in a second. My name is Dan Locke, co-founder and CEO of Give, where our vision is philanthropy in every business meeting. Give was hatched at Fenway Park in 2021 with my co-founder and best friend, Jeremy Funk. We met the first day of college at Brandeis University in 1998. We discussed how the mix of business and charity led to the most fulfilling business connections. So we created Give to be the first video meeting platform to combine business, volunteering, and philanthropy. U.S. philanthropy is at an all-time high at nearly $500 billion and more than 50% of global charity. At the same time, corporate social responsibility is 
indispensable to business. Survey data shows that more than 90% of employees are more likely to recommend their company and more than 90% of Gen Z wanna buy from companies that align with causes. The problem that we're solving is that it's hard to connect with senior business people. They're already in more than 220 million business meetings a year, comprising more than 50% of their working day on average and are unlikely to respond on LinkedIn, email, or phone. On Give, businesses can achieve social responsibility objectives with the same budget they're already planning to spend on operations. Give enhances the value of a donation by adding business incentives, such as getting a sales meeting or getting business expertise. Experts join to give back, to give back providing advice, volunteering, and raising money for nonprofits, all which result in positive brand recognition for them and businesses they work for. The demand side is simple. Users search across our network of profiles for a business leader, donate to that user's selected charity, schedule a time and meet over video, all from within the Give platform. In terms of traction, we announced a soft launch just last week at a startup networking event and have had 50 business leaders sign up already. Our iOS and Android apps should be live in about a month, but we're live online on the web. We're looking to spread awareness to our platform and to start facilitating meetings, empowering the next generation of charitable donors while mixing business. Thank you so much, Dan. Right, right on the money. Okay, Tannis, let's start with you. Any feedback? Yeah, that was great. That was extremely thorough. I really appreciated all of that. I'd, I'd be interested a little bit about uh, how the, the charities that get involved, what is the uptake, and, and, and maybe sharing a little bit about why charities uh, could get involved as well in this and, and what is the upside for them. Sure. So, so nonprofits, most of their marketing comes from events. They're still kind of in the early stages of moving online when it comes to growing their set of new donors. About, um, I'd say, 80% of donations come from 20% of donors. So the incentive here is for people to meet over business, but they'll be donating to a charity that they would have otherwise not donated to. So it leads to incremental donations. Yeah, I think her advice here is you, you got to talk about both parties. I would like to know why they're getting benefit too. Yeah, very good. David, any advice? Sure. Um, I do want to say something really strong. And I want everyone to like, yes, yes. Let's, have, let's hear it for America. That was a stunning statistic that America gives 50% of the world's charitable contributions. I just calculated we're 4% of the world's population. That's amazing. When we're feeling down, we should feel really proud about that. So good on you to find it. It's an interesting pitch. I'll do one comment, uh, the content one. I'm not, I don't know, you probably have experience on it, how much people have to give to get a meeting with a, with a CEO or something like that. Their time is super valuable. So unless these donations are relatively large, which most people probably who are startups can't do, I don't know how it's going to work. But there's some point where they'll do it. Maybe they would do it for a group. Like you could have like, oh, if 50 of you get, you know, give together, I'll meet with the 50 of you, something like that. Well, the business leader gets to see the agenda so they can see if it's a good fit. They can reject the meeting if it's not a good fit at all. You know, we've got some benchmarks where there are already companies offering things like gift cards um, and other things of monetary value to, to get business meetings. But in, in this case, the business leader gets something out of it and that they're volunteering to support a nonprofit that they care about while also um, promoting brand recognition for themselves and for their company at the same time. It's the asymmetry of this marketplace that has me questioning. But if you work on that, you can, you know, there are ways of fixing asymmetries and making it bolstering one side and reducing the friction cost on the other side. 
Okay. Well, we're going to, we're going to jump to the next one. Keep in touch, Dan. Thank you so much. Thanks guys. Next one, we have Luez. He's here from Stockash. Did I say that right? Yeah, Matthew. We are from Stockash. Very good. All right, sir. Well, you have two minutes to present your company starting now. Hi, I'm Luigi Drown. I'm founder and CEO of Stockcash. I'm from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And Stockcash, the name itself, tells what the company do. Uh, because we have stocks and we give people cash. So we are here to democratize employees' access to liquidity of their private shares in the, in the smartest and simple way. So the opportunity here, our mission is to help late-stage startups employees to unlock and maximize their ESOP value through a benefit called liquidity as a service with a credit solution. So the problem are most startups leave money on the table because they don't have uh, money to convert the, the stock option. So maybe their stock option are already vested and at the money or in deep in the money. And the other problem is that they already maybe converted the equity, but they don't have liquidity to do things just in normal life. Uh, we can have a, 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 a study here that shows that 86% of employees' average uh, network is the stock it, uh, uh, itself. We have a B2B2C solution. We have two products, one for converted vested option and the other to converted equity. Uh, we have a market here in Latin, an untapped market of all companies here in Latin uh, don't ha doesn't have access to this kind of product. We only have competitors in US. We don't have competitors at Europe or even Asia. So it's very simple. Stock cash gives people money against their stocks. Sorry for my English and my nervousness. No, that, that was very good. Your English was great. Don't apologize for that. Okay, Dave, let's start with you. So if you apologize for English, then we have to take away your charm being Brazilians. I wouldn't give it up. I think that the pitch was well delivered. You speak fast, as do we all. Everyone should just take a couple deep breaths before you do anything in life. It's a really good mantra to follow. In terms of the idea itself, it's a very interesting idea. There are a lot of financial complexities in terms of tax and corporate bylaws, which may facilitate or hinder or entirely block these kinds of things. So you've probably figured some of that out. In the presentation, you could go a little bit further in explaining that we've thought through this and we have plans because you can imagine some companies are very adverse to people exercising like this and selling out early. They want you to be there through the end when there's a final exit for everyone altogether. So it, it can cut both ways. It does give employees liquidity early when they need to buy a house, perhaps, something. Uh, but it detracts from what we call alignment, where everyone is rowing with the same oars in the same water toward this goal of getting the company big and public or whatever. So a little bit more explanation of how you've thought through those technical issues, the cross-frontier uh, issues are a big one because it, it, the regulations differ country to country. I'll stop there, but it's a great presentation so far. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely applaud uh, your confidence and, and, you know, I know Portuguese is probably your, your native tongue and your willingness to, you know, come out. I think that's so important. Um, yeah, just a couple of things. This is a two minute blast about your business, the quote unquote elevator pitch. And I think that this is something, and I know where our nerves are, are there and stuff like that, but being able to memorize and really hone that message about your business, it's really worth sitting down for a few days and working working on it, putting pen to paper and saying, what is that two minutes that if I literally have somebody incredible in front of me that I can just blurt out the key points and such. And then that way you have that ability to be yourself, to be your personality. Cause it's just, it's memorized. And like David said to the previous guy, your, your punctuation, you can blast those important things and throw those things. So it's just not just a memorizing and, and looking off screen to read. Really, this is your business. This is your future. Be, you know, Being able to communicate that and be excited about it will draw in investors and it will draw in people to your mission as well. So that, that, That's great advice. And, and when you practice it, you can do it in two languages or more maybe. I can barely do English. Well, thank you so much for presenting your company and keep in touch and please feel free to reapply. We can have you back on with the revised picks too. Okay, we have one more. We have Paul. Paul is coming to us from Heartlight LLC. Hi there, sir. All right, you have two minutes to present your company starting now. Thank you. Like most people, I used to avoid thinking about death. But then my brother got cancer and he asked me to help him to have a dignified death. I looked for a way that I could help my family find some comfort after his death because the hard part isn't the dying, not that that isn't challenging, obviously, but it's the days and months and years afterwards, the separation anxiety that lingers in those that remain. And being a technologist, I looked for a tech solution. I recorded his heartbeat and then I built a device to play it back in a visible way. After Terry's death, I presented the first heart light to our mother and father. They were deeply moved. Uh, and my father was normally stoic, uh, was visibly affected. My mother wept with joy and appreciation. And I knew then that I had to bring this product to everyone who might want it. I was running an early startup at the time focused on innovative uh, wearable technology. And we pivoted and focused on this new product. Uh, we raised some money from friends and family and ran a crowdfunding campaign to verify interest, but our timing was unfortunate and we were nearly tanked by COVID. Uh, we were forced to downsize and I've been working on a shoestring budget to continue doing what I can to bring Heartlight into the world. The hardware was redesigned to work with around supply chain issues. Uh, and now we have a design that can be manufactured quickly and at scale. Uh, we think there are customers in a wide range of market segments, not just death care, uh, where we know there's strong interest, but pet care, mental wellness, personal gifting, uh, and so on. A couple of retailers like Sharper Image have reached out directly and want to add Heartlight to their catalog. So we know we have some sales channels. Uh, and I'm currently looking for another founder with business expertise, uh, looking to raise capital to finish bringing our products to market and uh, looking for feedback and help from startup savvy folks like yourself. All right, Paul, that was very good. Tanis? 
Yeah. So I'm glad you showed that. And I, I didn't, I didn't know what the parameters were. Cause that would have been my first thing is like, I really want to see it. And maybe if you can't show it, you know, to, uh, just a visual description of what, I didn't know if it was like a picture or something, you know, whatever, what it was. So just a, a description, even if you can't show it, it's a, it's a ball that, that has this heartbeat that really, cause I, I didn't really understand what that was part, but what you did incredibly well, Paul, and I think any founder who's about to pitch was that, in, that story in the beginning. It just really was very personal. It was very gripping. Um, you know, you you really took us through a journey that helped us to see with something that unfortunately we're all going to touch at some point in our lives. And so to be, that, that was an excellent piece of it. Um, maybe maybe it went a bit too long because it cut into the time where you were able to then ask questions or, or tell us more information about the market or a, a, maybe a little more in depth about some of the, the, the challenges and some of the successes you've had, uh, that would be really good as well. So, but, um, but all in all, I think that, you know, how you started was really, really great. And just a little more description would be wonderful. David to you. I also was very gripped by your compelling story. And I'm sorry for your loss of your brother. Um, it's a beautiful tribute that you not only helped him through his death, but then you built a new innovation to help your parents and so on. That said, as a venture capitalist, I think you have to be very cautious about who you're going to be approaching. I don't want you to waste a lot of time. I don't think this is generally a venture capital typical likelihood for, for funding in the current model. I, I thought you were going to start to do something which I've started to see, which is all the services that gets one ready for death, or your will in one place, and a living testament, and a, you know all kinds of burial procedures, and all that services, which are a big deal, and it's a lot of money is spent on it. So if you go into that whole thing, then it's something that maybe a venture firm would be interested in. Products, especially hardware products that are consumer items that can be returned, uh, and there's inventory costs, all that, is typically not a thing that most venture firms that I know deal with. There are some that do this, and there are more angels and specialty uh, distributors that might be appropriate for you. So look at you know that carefully so you don't a waste time and you can get success. Now um, I don't exactly know why COVID would have stopped it because people were at home. I hate to say this, but people were still dying, um, even in excessive numbers. And um, so I'm not, I'm not sure that's a that's a good excuse. Maybe there's something else that you need to look at. Um, and that's that's a very important part of being an entrepreneur is to self-search and say, wait a minute, I, I believe in this, but do other people and do enough people. Um, and, you know, I can see some people saying, oh, I like this for a short period of time, but do I want this for 10 years on my desk or in my living room? Or do I have to explain it every time I have people over? Oh, that's the heartbeat of my brother. You know, it might get awkward. And, and there's the beauty side of it. And then there's the also the... TMI side of it, if you understand what I'm saying. So those are a few points. I thought your presentation was clear. Um, I agree with Tanis. Maybe a, the story was excellent, but a little bit maybe too much story for the time we had left. And I don't know if we we didn't nobody did it, and I don't know if this is the point where they would. But you know, letting us know what the ask is. You know, how much are you looking to raise? I mean, th that's a really important question, I think, as well. So uh, none of our, none of the previous pitchers did that either. I'd be curious to know what you're what you're raising, et cetera, too. So, yeah, I'm looking for one million. Uh, that gets us to a finished product and about five thousand units uh, manufactured. Yeah. And that was the challenge with COVID was we weren't able to raise capital at that time. Everybody was heads down. It's not that it wasn't perfectly appropriate. 
but we just couldn't raise the capital. That was the challenge there. But thank you for your point, David, about being careful with that, you know, excuse. Uh, yeah, thank you. That that's great. All right. Well, this is this has been great. And, and Paul, thank you for presenting that. I, I think it's really interesting myself. Well, everyone, that, that concludes today's episode. And next week, we're taking next week off. But the following week, we have a very special episode with Kleiner Perkins, Mamoon Hammond, and then Ariana Huffington from Thrive Global. And Ariana used to be my boss years ago. Okay, friends. Well, thank you so much. And we'll see you guys next time. TechCrunch Live is hosted by myself, TechCrunch Managing Editor, Matt Burns. We're produced by Teresa Solo and Maggie Statements, with video production by Ishad Kalkarni, Julio Barrientos, and Dennis Martinez. We are edited by Andrew Mendez, Maggie Statements, and Teresa Solo. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch Audio Products. If you want your questions to be featured in an upcoming episode, email us at podcast at techcrunch.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.